Welcome to Life Church. My name is Dylan Johnston, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. As we do at the beginning of every month, I want to update you on our greater giving. Greater is anything above and beyond our tithe and offering. It goes around the corner and around the world. You just saw a video of what is happening at our Life Center in Milwaukee, which is a nonprofit that you support, which has this year alone given away over 100,000 meals, which is absolutely incredible. And they're not done yet. And I just want to say, none of that is possible without your generosity. And so I want to say thank you. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for giving. And thank you that even in a year like 2020, you are trusting God with your resources. In October alone, you gave $35,081.81. Over the course of this whole year, you have given generously to greater around the corner and around the world to see lives changed and souls saved. You've given $688,569. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, Thank you for being faithful to what God is continuing to do and wanting to do through us as a church and through us as Christ followers. We don't feed 100,000 people without your generosity. And so I want to say thank you. Today, we are beginning a brand new series titled Providence, and we're going to be in the book of Romans over the next several weeks. Today, in fact, we'll be in Romans chapter 9. As you're turning there, I want to say thank you to Pastor Aaron for giving me the opportunity to speak. And as I was studying, I went back to my childhood, and I began to think about my upbringing. Now, I don't know about you, but my parents were uh, relatively strict. Now, it wasn't like um, militarized in, a, in that manner, but it was pretty strict. There was a lot of things I couldn't do, um, and there were a lot of things I felt like I had to do. I got quite a few spankings, and I got put in timeout quite often. I, was, I felt like I was almost always grounded. I, I grew up in a pretty strict household. And then I remember asking my parents as I grew up, I would um, be invited to go do something with friends or a football game would be coming up on the weekend or there would be some big event that would be taking place. And I would say, mom, dad, uh, can I go to the movies with John, Rachel, and Sarah? They would think about it for a little bit. They would do one of those uh, holy parent huddles. You know what I'm talking about, parents, where you just kind of cycle off to a corner by yourself. You talk in hushed tones for a few moments before you return. After the Senate of the family has uh, discussed and conferred, they they come back with a verdict. And my parents would do that, and they would come back. And there were times where they would say, "Uh, Dylan, um, you know, I appreciate you asking, but this time it's a no-go. You're not going. My immediate knee-jerk reaction, I'd say, hey, uh, but, but, but John's parents are letting him go. But, but Sarah's parents are letting her go. But, but Rachel's parents are letting her go. My parents, I feel like my dad um, received joy from doing this. A sly smile would creep across his face and he'd say, well, it's a good thing we're not John, Rachel's, or Sarah's parents, isn't it? And I would sit there and I'd scream, that's not fair. They're all getting to do it and I'm not getting to do it. Why are their parents letting them? And they would again reiterate, hey Dylan, guess what? We are not their parents. At the time, looking back, I thought it was just my parents being unfair. I thought my parents were being unfairly strict or had unfair sets of rules. I I thought they didn't care about my social life or my friendships, which 
they probably shouldn't because they didn't last. I, I, thought, I thought all of these things, and yet when I begin to look back, I can see how maybe, just maybe, students that are listening, pay attention. Maybe, just maybe, my parents had a better understanding of the circumstances that I was about to enter into. Maybe, just maybe, my, my parents had a greater understanding of what I was going to do, whether it was the movie that I was wanting to go see, they had an understanding of the content of the movie, they had an understanding of where I'd be going to see the movie, they had an understanding of some of the, the, the friends that I would be hanging out with. Maybe, just maybe, when my mom said that that girl is not a, a, a girl that is going to push me closer to God. Maybe, just maybe, she was right. Maybe, just maybe, my, my parents had a bigger picture for my life and a bigger idea of what I was walking into. And if that's the case between me at whether it be 8, 12, 14, 15, 16 years old and my parents, how much more so is the chasm between our understanding as mere finite human beings and God's infinite wisdom. How much more of a discrepancy is there between our comprehension of what we're walking through and what we're dealing with and what we're struggling with versus how God sees it, how God views it, how God understands it. I get it, I get it. There can be times in your life where you think you know what's best, but can I just help you out? That time after time after time, history has proven itself that, that we don't know what's best for our lives. We don't know what's best for our circumstances. We, in our own right, in our own mind, we don't know truly how to define what we necessarily need. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, has the ability to look at our lives and have a plan and a purpose for us in the midst of what we may feel like is the worst circumstances of all time. He sees us, he knows us, and yet in the, in the broader picture, God is working at a vast expanse. He, he's working on the overall picture of his glory, his name, his fame, and you, I'm sorry, but you and I, we play a very, very, very small part of that. I, I used to hear a, a, uh, a, a message from, from different pastors growing up, a youth pastor. I feel like every youth pastor I ever had did this illustration where they would run a rope across the room and it'd be a, a long, long rope and they, they would tie a little piece of red r ribbon or red scarlet uh, yarn across the middle of it. And they'd say, hey, this, this is your life. And they're like, okay, this is cool. This, this little red piece is your life. And it's like everything from the moment you're born to the moment you pass away, this is you. Every joyful moment, every terrible moment, every great thing, every bad thing, every strong and enjoyable moment, every touchdown you scored from middle school to high school, and every moment you got passed up for a raise or for a promotion, this is your life. And then it would almost be this moment where it felt like you were zooming out and the pastor, the preacher, the teacher would be like, this whole rope that spans from that room, end of the room to this end of the room, that is the course of eternity. Your life is but a blip, as the Old Testament writer would say, it's but a vapor in the midst of eternity. The question is, do we trust God in that process? You see, that's what Paul is writing here in Romans chapter nine. He's diving into some of these questions, some of this understanding of do we understand or really are we trusting in God's understanding of our current circumstances? Romans nine begins with Paul in this heartbroken state where he's 
pleading for his people, the Jewish people, to come to Jesus. For many of them, if not most of them, had trusted not in Jesus, but in the law. And the law, which was a good thing, uh, it had become what they were, were following. It had, in fact, for most of them, for many of them, became a god. And so the Jewish people were trusting in the law to bring about salvation in their lives and not in Jesus. And Paul even writes here in Romans chapter 9 in a summarization, he, uh, he, he writes essentially saying, I would trade my salvation if it meant all of the Jewish people would receive it. That's a big statement. And he begins to unravel it a little more and talk about God's sovereignty and how God shows mercy on whom he wants to show mercy to. He even begins to um, give uh, Old Testament illustrations of this. He, he looks at Abraham and Sarah and says, God chose to pass the blessing of, of the offspring and of God's people through Abraham and Sarah's offspring, not through Abraham and Hagar's. He then transitions over to Rebecca's twins, Jacob and Esau, and how one of them got the blessing and the birthright and the other didn't, and one had the lineage of Israel through it and the other did not. And, and then he goes over to Pharaoh, and this is about where we pick up in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. He goes over to Pharaoh, and he begins to uh, talk about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart to bring God, to bring himself maximum glory through rescuing the people of Israel. And so here in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, we see that, that, that God is working, Paul is writing, that God is sovereign, that it may not make sense to us, but God is moving and working, and it's for his big plan, and it's for his big goals, and for big vision, and we may not, as I did in the beginning, see the full understanding of the moment or the circumstances. So here in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, let's dive in. Paul writes, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy on and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And here in these next few verses, Paul imagines the reader asking this question of, of is that fair? It's, it's the little kid yelling at his parent, hey, that's not fair, right? And Paul imagines you as the reader, me as the reader, the Roman uh, people there in that day asking this question, God, is that even fair? And in verse 19, he writes, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God... Although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Listen, I know in that brief 10 verses, that little passage, there's a lot to unpack. 
And yet I think if we're going to look at it from a broad view, from uh, just this kind of 3,000 degree uh, view, if we, we get really high up in a plane and we look down on these verses, there's really two main things we see here. And the first thing is this, and you may not like how this sounds, but the first thing is this, you are not God. You are not God. And I know right there, uh, wherever you're watching this from, you're probably bristling at the sound of that because uh, it may come across a bit offensive, but friend, you are not God. And that can sound confrontational and aggressive, but I uh, would rather suggest that it should actually be a bit comforting. For this means that you, you're not responsible, specifically, number one, you're not responsible for your own salvation. You, you can't provide your salvation. We've talked about this as we've gone through Romans throughout the year, that the salvation does not come through your good works. Salvation does not come through you helping old ladies across the street. Salvation does not come by your success or how much money you can manage. Salvation does not come by how good of a person you are, but rather salvation cannot be produced through human efforts. It has to come from someone great than us. So you're not responsible for that. You're not responsible for, for producing the ability to be saved. Like everyone, all of us should just take a deep sigh of relief. You are not responsible for salvation. God doesn't look at you and question why you haven't done God things. He, he doesn't look at you and say, hey, why haven't you created new worlds? Why haven't you breathed life into new humans? Why, why haven't you made something out of nothing? Why aren't you doing God? God is not concerned about that because you are not responsible to do God things. But also, in the same breath, it means you are not God. Again, that goes back to the point. You're not God. This means the whole thing, this whole life, this whole existence is bigger than you and it's bigger than me. There's a bigger perspective at play. And so when we get a little bit internal and we begin to wrestle with things that we're struggling with and think this is all that the world is turning around. Can I just help you out? It's not. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. And that doesn't always feel great in the moment that we're walking through difficulties. And yet it's gotta be said, this thing, this life, this existence is bigger than us. In fact, life may seem unfair at times. It, it may not make sense. And you may wanna complain to God that he isn't doing what you want and isn't getting you where you wanna go and isn't giving you what you want. But as Pastor Aaron says all the time, fairness ended in the garden. Like fairness doesn't really exist. God is sovereign. He is working. He is moving. And we are not God, so we don't have the full understanding that he has. But can I be honest with you? The things we want and the things we need and the things we complain to God that it's not fair that we're not getting that someone else is getting. Can I just be real with you? We actually don't even deserve those things. Not even those things do we not deserve, but we don't even deserve mercy. Romans chapter three says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans six says that because of that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we deserve, this is the only thing we deserve, we deserve eternal punishment. But Paul didn't leave it there in Romans chapter six. He says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see what we deserve? is not what we truly want. What God gives us is the absolute opposite antithesis of what we truly 
deserve. And the beauty, the beauty of what God has done And the beauty of the fact that you are not God is that in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God says, and and, and Paul writes, that God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve grace. By all means, we don't deserve to do well and be successful. And yet God, who is rich in mercy, somehow finds it within his massive ability to extend grace and mercy to us as human beings who are severely flawed. And he says, here you go. Here's grace. Here's mercy. Will you receive it? Will you take it. Listen, I get it. Um, It may not be super encouraging for some of you here today to hear that you are not God, but my hope is that by the time we conclude this service, you would uh, receive that and then have a deeper understanding of what Paul is writing here in Romans chapter 9. You're not responsible for salvation. You don't deserve mercy, and yet God gives mercy. And the second point today um, Very simply put, uh, the opposite of you are not God, it actually goes hand in hand with it. Um, You're not God, but number two, God is God. God is God, and I get it. This can seem somewhat Sunday school, kind of elementary age um, method, and yet uh, the truth of the matter is this, that this is one of the biggest issues that you and I wrestle with for our entire lives. In fact, in Romans chapter nine, Paul is writing to the Jewish people, and he's, he's upset that they have turned the law, which is a good thing, into a God thing, and they are following it and trusting in it for their salvation. And I wonder, friends, how many of us have changed that which is good into a God thing in our lives and we are trusting in it and trusting in ourselves to bring about saving grace for our lives and it does not work that way. One of the biggest issues we all struggle with whether we recognize it or not is who is truly God in our lives? Who is God in our lives? In fact, the, the scripture um, goes even further and it compares God to a potter and us to clay. And it, it describes how God, the potter, would take some clay and out of that clay, he would make pot and, and, and cups and mugs for, for special use, for special occasions. And he'd make other um, pots and pans and whatever else you make with clay for common use. And, and, and it says that how could the potter not be responsible for and able to make some for special and some for common? It's completely within his ability to choose what will be special used and what will be commonly used. You see, in our lives, we are the clay. God is the potter. He is working on shaping us and moving us and changing us. We may not always get what we're going through, and yet he's pushing on an edge, and he's pulling out the lip, and he's stretching out the pot and and, uh, the clay and moving it so that it can become the cooking pot or the coffee mug or the tea glass or whatever it is that God is making out of our lives. And yet it's not always comfortable. In fact, it has to go through a heating process to, to kind of refine it and harden it. That probably doesn't feel good and yet in the end for you for it to get to where it needs to be to be utilized for its specific created usage it has to go through this process and who uh, Paul kind of elaborates who as the clay is able to say to the potter that I deserve to be something else rather than what you've created me no 
We, as the clay, have no ability and no right to respond to the potter. I I would rather be something else. In fact, I think that I have the ability to do different things than what you've destined me to do. No, the potter, God, is God. And he is the one who is designing, shaping, creating, and calling us to do what he created and placed us here to do. You are here on purpose and for a purpose. Don't get it twisted and don't get it shifted. Stop comparing yourself to others and start living who you were created to be. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you recognize and realize that you are not God, but God is God. And he's working in your life. And it may be uncomfortable, it may not be fun, there may be some circumstances that you have questions or doubts about, and you may not fully understand what's going on, and yet God is God, and God is working those things into the shape of your life. Doesn't it make sense that God, the creator of all things, the one who is outside of time, who began time itself and created uh, the whole world and existence out of nothing, Doesn't it make sense that God sees our life and and lives and knows our lives and knows the ins and outs and knows what we're going through? Doesn't it make sense that in in his omniscience, his all-wise, all-knowing power, God sees you, God knows you, and God uh, has a plan and a purpose for you? Doesn't it just make sense that God is working to bring about maximum glory for his kingdom and he knows how to do that? And, And honestly, you and I, we don't. In fact, God chose to show us mercy. He chose to provide salvation for us. And and it's not because we could do it, but it's all because of what he did for us. He extends the mercy. He extends the grace. It covers our sin and our shame and our inability to uphold the law of God. And it provides us with salvation. God is sovereign. God is God. And my friend today, you are not. This past week, I, as I was working on this message, I uh, was taken back about 20 years ago to a song that I um, used to sing all the time as a little kid. Uh, when I was about nine years old, this song released, and I remember hearing it on Christian radio and in my Sunday school classes and in our, our little church kids' choir, and I'd be singing this song, and I, 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 I sang it, and it was powerful then, but my goodness, as I sang the chorus this week and as I played it over and over again, Uh, the power of these lyrics really stands the test of time. The the writer of the song, his name is uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman. He titled the song, God is God. And the, the chorus, that's the only part I care about in most songs, but the chorus, it goes like this. God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God. And I am man. So I'll never understand it all, for only God is God. And as a little kid, I I sang those lyrics and I thought, this is a fun song. And yet when I'm now 28 years old with a wife and a baby in my hands and I'm singing this song, it's like tears are welling up in my eyes because I'm recognizing that I don't have the ability to produce for this kid everything he needs. I am but a man, but God is God. God has the ability to do far more exceedingly abundantly beyond all I could ever ask or imagine. That's who God is. And I am not. No matter what I go through, I'm only seeing one side, one part of the picture that he is painting of all of existence. 
Stephen wrote this song back in 2001 when he was inspired by a, mess, or by a story he had heard of some missionaries in uh, the 50s and 60s, I believe, who, who were doing missions work. And while they were doing missions work, a tragedy occurred and several of them were killed. And uh, it's this, this written from this understanding of like, I, we don't understand why this happens. But as Stephen was diving into this story, he saw that the family of those who were killed on the mission, in, in the mission field uh, continued to go back to the place that they were killed and continued to spread the gospel. And the, the good news of Jesus Christ continued to spread even though there were some who were martyred for the case of Christ. And Stephen writes this song from this understanding of we don't get it. It doesn't make sense. We felt like we were doing what God called us to do. And yet here we are doing what we feel like God has called us to do. And our family members and our loved ones have died. But we don't feel like God has done with what he's called us to do. So we're going to keep pressing forward because we only see one aspect of the picture that he's painting. Several years later, uh, in 2017, I, uh, there's a video that was put on YouTube of Stephen sitting down with the megachurch pastor. And both of them are sitting there in front of the congregation having this conversation. And both of them had lost their youngest child uh, over the course of their life. Stephen, somewhere in uh, 2008, and the pastor, um, uh, a little bit later than that, and they're now sitting there discussing how grief um, can, can run their life and how they walk through the sorrow and the tragedy and how they had to lean on their spouse and lean on others and lean on God to, to really pull them through these struggles. And they were sharing the song lyrics and the pastor was reading some of the song lyrics of Stephen's songs back to him and Stephen was singing the songs and there was these, these powerful moments where I felt like there was healing taking place, not just in them, but in people um, that were watching watching this video and people that were there in the congregation hearing the message that there was healing taking place in broken hearts and broken souls and people that aren't understanding what God is doing in the moment. And really their whole message was, you may not get it. It may not make sense, but somehow, someway, somewhere, God is working and God is God. And after I finished watching that video, I went back to the song and I began to read the lyrics once more, God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God and I am man. I will never understand it all for only God is God. I don't know what you're going through today, but I do know that these lyrics Stand the test of time in Romans chapter 9, 14 through 24. Stand the test of time that regardless of where you find yourself today, God is God. Whether it's at your lowest low or your highest high, God is God. Whether you came to the service struggling and carrying baggage that you don't know how to get loose of, God is God. And God is working things out and he is moving and doing things that you may not even see yet, but he is at work. He's painting the masterpiece of existence. He's doing things that you and I just will never fully understand. So my encouragement, my, my uh, true, my, my, my uh, imploring of you today is to do as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, which is to trust in the Lord with all your heart 
Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him. And he, he alone will make your path straight. There is peace, there is joy, and there is hope again. For God is God, and you are not. Would you pray with me today? Lord, we love you, and we thank you. And God, I'm just going to say it for all of us. We may not understand what is happening. We may look at you and question and doubt and not fully understand how some have mercy and favor and grace and it seems like others don't. We don't have all the answers, but today, God, I recognize this one common central fact that you are God and I'm not. And so I trust in you. I depend on you. And I give you my life, I give you my family, I give you my hopes, I give you my dreams, and I lean so heavily upon you that if you were to move, my whole life would fall apart. I trust that God is God. And I choose to live my life to bring you maximum glory, regardless of my understanding or my comprehension of what I'm walking through. I love you, I thank you, I give you all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.